Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I am Laura Robinson, and we are PhD students in New Testament studies at Duke University. Today we'll be discussing E.P. Sanders' monograph, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. He published this in 1977, and it's sort of a foundational monograph for the new perspective on Paul. Um, Laura, what's What's going on in the first four-fifths of this book? Right, yeah. So we're not going to take a lot of time to talk about the, the first part of this book just because it's extremely detailed and it, it goes through a lot of text and we want to get down to the, the heart of his argument about Paul. What E.P. What e. Sanders was responding to was what he calls the Lutheran reading of Paul. So his concern was that German New Testament writers in particular, but also English-speaking ones, read Paul as though he was responding to this crisis in Judaism that his, his conscience was tormenting him. He felt like he was unable to fulfill the law, that it was so burdensome and so difficult. His revelation of Christ was that he didn't we need to work so hard fulfilling the law because God had already acted through Jesus Christ and he had this op- opportunity to be saved through faith instead. Uh, and this is actually not a great description of Judaism in, at the time as much as it's a description of the way Luther felt about Catholics. <laughs> right. um, and this is, uh, th- these things don't map onto each other very well. So. so for more on this, you could see our episode on Christer Stendhal's no. Paul and the Introspective Consciousness of the West. Mm-hmm. So what he does is really an impressive undertaking. He surveys basically all of the extant Jewish literature for Second Temple Judaism in the period from 100 BC to 100 CE and lays out what he calls a pattern of religion for Judaism. The term he coins for this is covenantal nomism, which is basically the conviction that God has a covenant with the Jewish people that is founded in grace and makes allowances for forgiveness and demands for keeping in the covenant. Yeah, and that's the idea of covenantal nomism. So what is that? Sanders is holding this up in contrast to, again, this very Lutheran idea that Jews had a sense of the law as being unfollowable and massive and detailed and unwieldy and that they were burdened by trying to keep the entire thing in order to stay in the good graces of God. And what Sanders finds when he goes through Jewish literature is that that's not actually the case, that the rather than having a sense that you had to fulfill the law in order to become favorable to God, there was a strong sense among Jewish writers that by virtue of being born Jews, they were born into the covenant, that God already had this unconditional covenant relationship with them. And following the law wasn't a burden they had to do to impress God. It was a gift that they had that affirmed their identity as the covenant people and as the chosen people. And forgiveness and grace and unconditionality are all built into this idea. They're not things that Paul invented to fix the problems in Judaism. Yep. So today we're going to focus on Sanders' fifth chapter, which is his treatment of Paul. In particular, we're going to be looking at the question of whether or not Paul's theology has a center um, that is a central or fundamental conviction out of which his other convictions grow. So so the center of Paul's thought being the question of what is the defining aspect of Paul's theology and his religion from which everything else is worked out. The two poles that Sanders is rejecting is the idea that Paul is completely contingent, has no center, no systematization to his thought. And on the other hand, that Paul is a systematic theologian, working out his ideas perfectly logically, writing treatises that are not related to the situation at hand. And he wants to sort of split the difference by arguing for a core set of convictions out of which the other parts of his theology grow and to which his several convictions are tied. 
For him, this is the participatory model. But we should first entertain this idea that Paul might be just totally contingent. Yeah. And this is what Heike Raisinon has argued. And he, he doesn't mean this is a put down on Paul, to be yeah. honest. It's, it's more that Paul is not a theologian. He's a pastor. Right. And that his primary interest is in the issues that his congregations are experiencing. And he writes the letters completely to their direct need. And they can't be systematized into larger, uh, into larger patterns. And there's a few reasons to think why this is not an or this is not a crazy idea. Uh, for one thing, we know the letters are extremely contingent. Paul makes mm-hmm. reference to the situations he's trying to answer, and also there's some there's some pretty obvious contradictions between some of Paul's letters and others. Um, Galatians has a way lower view of the law, for instance, than Romans does. In Galatians three, Paul talks about it as being given by angels as a mediator. It's this sort of this outmoded thing that can causes oppression and slavery. And in Romans, there's still aspects of it, but there's still this fundamental agreement that the law is good. Circumcision. Uh, in Galatians 6, Paul says circumcision is of no importance. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says circumcision or not circumcision, you know, is, is doesn't matter. Um, whereas in Romans 3, he explicitly says circumcision is of great importance if you follow the law. So something as central to law keeping and Jewish identity as circumcision, one would think if Paul was a systematic theologian, he would have had worked this out. Before we jump to that, though, it seems that it's only fair to give Paul a fair shake and see if there actually is something that holds up as a a central idea in Paul. Yeah, this is sort Uh, of an apparatic judgment, right? It's a council of desperation. If you can't come up with anything else, this should be where you go to, and it makes sense. Um, At the same time, you know, it is not implausible to think of an author writing in antiquity letters to specific churches in specific situations who still has core theological convictions that are worked out coherently as applied to particular situations. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that Paul is a systematic theologian. Right. Like, he's never a systematic theologian. He's always speaking into certain situations, even in Romans. So, But what we're looking for then is not a consistent doctrinal system but something that unites and makes sense of all of Paul's various assertions. Right. So how would we identify a center, a theological center? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the way E.P. Sanders talks about it is that the central idea is the idea from which all other ideas are worked out. It is assumed and not justified. It's not something that Paul would have to be an idea that Paul does not defend or explain but it's something that is the root of the other ideas that he does subsequently explain and defend. So what are possible ones of those? So the most popular in the history of reception of Paul is, of course, the idea that justification by faith is the center of Paul's thought. This is his soteriological model, and it is out of this that his other convictions and his theology are worked out. This, of course, is associated with, I mean, this is the Lutheran view, right? This is associated with the Protestant Reformation and the reading of Paul, whereby humankind stands condemned by their failure to perform the works of the law. Uh, But faith in Jesus' death and resurrection now is reckoned to humanity as righteousness before God. Yeah. So one of the problems with seeing this as the center of Paul's thought, for one thing, is that it just doesn't show up very often. Uh, This idea is only in Galatians and Romans and Philippians 3. And in those, those are all contexts in which it seems like Paul is dealing with the same set of issues. Like, this is inherently contingent for him. He's writing to Judaizers, or he's working through problems between Jews and Gentiles in Romans. This isn't something that is clearly central to Paul's thought, and that is the heart of the Corinthian court. It never shows up in the Corinthian correspondence. Right. So this only appears 
when either he's dealing with Judaizers, when the question of whether or not Christians should follow the law becomes the principal, you know, point of contention, or as in Philippians 3, when the question is about his own credentials, um, whether or not he is a good, proper Jew. <laughs> uh, it doesn't show up when you're dealing with people dying in First Thessalonians. It doesn't show up when you're dealing with um, people sleeping with sex workers in First Corinthians. It doesn't appear throughout Philemon or Philippians other yeah, than... Not employed to talk about slavery in right. Philemon or... Um, yeah. And the other big problem with this, too, is that this the, the, the justification by faith view moves from the assumption that Paul was aware of himself as a sinner and unable to fulfill the law and spoke to Gentiles in terms of this, that they are unable to please God and they need this faith solution to do it. Uh, the problem is that Paul never really indicates that he felt this way. Right. Uh, every time he talks about the law, uh, particularly in Philippians 3, um, in Galatians 1, it's always with the assumption that he was actually doing just great as a right. Jew, that he was a very successful young Pharisee and never seemed to have any real sense of his inadequacy before God um, or any a sense that anything was wrong until Jesus just showed up. Again, see our podcast on Stendhal for this. But in addition to Paul's own belief that he didn't have a problem as a law follower or as a Christian, as a morally upright person, Sanders has argued in the beginning of this book that Jews generally didn't have any such conviction. Right. Um, they weren't worried about their ability to stand before God as righteous observers of Torah. Yeah. Forgiveness was a built-in part of the system, and ritual purity was not the sort of thing which people expected to perpetually maintain. Right. The other issue with this, and uh, Sanders is really invested in the fact that Paul moves fr in his soteriology Paul moves from solution to problem and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no indication that Paul had this sense of himself as unworthy and then moved from there to the idea that he needed a savior. In Galatians 1, it says that he had a revelation from Christ, and that's what started his conversion path, that he saw Jesus as a solution to humanity's situation before God and in, in, in relationship to enslaving powers such as sin and death and retrofitted his understanding of these problems of sin and death in light of the revelation of Jesus he had. Right. This is sort of counterintuitive because, of course, Romans moves from plight to solution. But Sanders' contention is that if you read Paul looking for his biography, it seems that Paul, Paul thinks he's got it going on. The Damascus event, for lack of a better term, which is derived from Acts, um, happens and he, he is then provided with a solution for which he needs, he goes looking for a problem. And that problem is that humanity is enslaved to sin and death. The last thing to be said about this, and we'll explore this more fully when we go into uh, looking at how the participation model works, but justification itself is explained in terms of participation, whereas justification is never invoked to explain other things. Justification doesn't appear when Paul is engaging the question of whether or not you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Justification doesn't appear to explain, you know... Marriage and sexual ethics, I think, would be another right. good... Yeah. So if participation is used to explain justification, and justification doesn't appear to explain other phenomena, but participation does, there's a good case to be made that justification can't be sitting central to Paul's theology, but is rather one contingent outworking of his conviction concerning participation. 
So another proposed center of Pulse Thought is the idea of salvation history. And this is the view that's been championed by Richard Hayes and Tom Wright. This is the idea that the center point of Paul's theology is this narrative of the story of Israel, starting with the patriarchs, um, or I mean, actually Adam, and then moving into the patriarchs and the giving of the law at Sinai. And what Paul is most interested in is the question of putting himself and his mission in, in Jesus in conversation with those events to see the development of God's plan working out over time. Right. So the key passage for this, of course, is Romans 9 through 11, although uh, proponents would also point to the role of Abraham in Galatians. And this is also one of the key problems because this salvation history model doesn't really appear outside of the named passages. Furthermore, with the exception of Romans 9 through 11, Jesus doesn't seem to play a role in Paul's invocation of salvation history. So when Paul discusses the faithfulness of Abraham in Romans 4 and in Galatians um, and its relationship to justification. Jesus and his death and resurrection are logically related, of course, uh, but don't seem to be central to this narrative. (laughs) And so people have argued that the salvation history model puts Jesus at the periphery rather than at the center of Paul's theology. (laughs) Right, 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 right. The, the the other reason why this is this doesn't make a lot of sense as a central center of Paul's thought is that Paul's ethical injunctions are not derived from salvation history. One place you can see this in particular is in uh, Paul's discussion of meat sacrificed to idols in First Corinthians. You know, there are so many verses in the Old Testament on idols and uh, you know the falseness the falsehood of idols and the importance of not worshiping idols and sticking to to sticking with God that he could have cited in order to explain why you shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. But Paul keeps reaching back to this idea of participation in koinonia, that if you participate at the altar of Christ through the Eucharist, you can't participate in the altar of Christ through that uh, invoked through idol meat and and sacrifices to demons. The comparison to Jewish literature here is really easy because it's not uncommon in discussions of pagan idolatry to see people refer back to Abraham who, according to Jewish traditions, you know, was an idol builder. Um, His or, parents were. Yeah, yeah right. His dad um, was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, left behind idolatry to worship the one true God. Paul doesn't make that move. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, he once again invokes this participatory metaphor. Yeah. Lastly, the salvation history reading of Abraham is clearly a contentious point for Paul. It's the thing he's arguing over in Galatians James, the letter of James may even give further evidence of this. It is not the assumed assumed undergirding metaphor of his theology. It is the point of contention between him and his opponents and the people there, the people he's imploring uh, to come to his side in both Galatians and Romans. And at least on Sanders' criteria, uh, the center of a theology should be basically assumed. Yeah, so that brings us to point three, which is participation. And this is the center of Paul's thought that uh, that Sanders proposes. This has also been championed by Schweitzer and Duke's own Douglas Campbell. <laughs> Sanders, by the way, is also Duke's oh, own. Oh, that's right. What am I talking? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's retired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But So basically, on this model, humans are saved by being mystically united to Jesus in his death and anticipate joining him in his resurrection. Um, They are thereby freed from the powers of sin and death, and for Schweitzer, also from Torah. Uh, We won't go into the nuances of Schweitzer's mystical eschatology, but the the contours of the soteriology are the same. There is some 
unspecified sense in which we are united to Jesus. So we can see one thing that we can see a lot of in this participation model is how many ideas and concepts in ethical and a lot of ethical ideas are derived from the language of participation and not the other way around. So one great example of this is 1 Corinthians 6 verses 16 to 17. This is when Paul is talking about uh, members of his congregation who have been uh, uh, eliciting the services of sex workers. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh, but anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Right. So the reason why you can't see a sex worker is because sex unites two humans. And that is, but, but the Christian has already been united to God, I mean, to, to the Lord through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so these other unions are therefore, are, are therefore inappropriate. Right. Uh, similarly, uh, meat sacrificed to idols uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.10. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the sense again is that partaking in these things would be to unite yourself with demons rather than to God, as Paul believes happens in our faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, another case where we see this is uh, the relationship, Paul's relationship to the law uh, in Galatians 2, 19 to 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Right. So you see again in that situation that Paul does not derive his understanding of participation through his understanding of the law, but the other way around. Lastly, justification is derived from participation in Romans 6. So Romans 6, 7 reads, For whoever has died is justified from sin. Verb there is dikaio'o. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we all will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. So justification, dikaio'o, being set right, being straightened out, um, however you want to render that, is explained via our participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul employs participatory metaphors to explain how we become the righteousness of God by participating in Christ's death. We'd also be remiss if we didn't point out that the central passage for participation, not necessarily where you see cases of it being worked out in relationship to other doctrines, but the key passage for this is just Romans chapters 5 to 8. This is generally considered to be the the linchpin of the participation argument in Paul. And if you want to see more about how participation works in Paul, we would send you there. Right. So are there any problems with this model? I think we'd both say, yes, (laughs) it's not perfect. For instance, Paul also has a strong conviction in the, in the imminence of the eschaton. Um, he's convinced that the world is going to end soon. Jesus is coming back. And if you haven't been reconciled or you haven't reconciled yourself to Jesus, that spells trouble for you. 
this conviction seems to be more or less independent from participation. One could imagine Paul employing the metaphor of participation for soteriology and not believing the end was about to come, and vice versa. First Thessalonians, for instance, seems to be mostly concerned with the imminence of the eschaton, and there's little, if any, evidence for any of the three soteriological models just discussed in that letter. Uh, similarly, um, Paul's stance on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 is grounded not in justification, not in a salvation history, and not in participation, but in his conviction that the world is about to end, so getting married seems like a silly thing to do. Yeah. And then also, the other thing that is really characteristic of Paul's thought is his conviction that he's been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to the uncircumcised in a way that distinguishes him greatly from Peter, who's called to the circumcised. It, this actually seems to be more clearly derived from the salvation historical idea than participation. Particularly Isaiah, too, in the prophet, in prophetic literature, alludes to this idea that in the end times, in the, in the last days, that Gentiles will come to Jerusalem, they will learn Torah, they will recognize that the God of the Jews was the Lord of the universe the whole time, and they will put aside their idols and will become Yahweh worshippers. And this idea really doesn't have anything to do with participation. It's purely a salvation historical move. And Paul seems th this way better explains Paul's mission to the Gentiles than any participation motif. Right. Agreed. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for joining us, and we'll yeah. see what we discuss next month. Absolutely. Take care. Leave us a review. It's easy. Open your podcast app, find our show, scroll down, hit five stars, more people will find us. Leave us a positive review, though. Yeah, you can only leave five-star reviews. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com. Thanks to Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song in the intro and outro music of the podcast. You should check them out. I've seen brighter stars than